Welcome back to another episode of the Huxley Morton podcast, the show where in 2021, I'm bringing you interviews with some of the world's most ambitious, uh, innovative pharma company owners and industry leaders who have all agreed to share their stories of personal and professional growth. Uh, this week, I'm joined by Ernest uh, Odami. Um, Ernest, you're both a director uh, focused on, on global evidence for Takeda and also the, the founder of Erod Health, uh, a health tech uh, platform looking at improving health outcomes. Um, look, welcome to the show. Give us a bit more of an introduction in your own words. Um, uh, I guess on both sides of things, real quick. Thank you. Uh, I'm I'm excited to to be a part of this, and um, I'm always uh, happy to share my story uh, because there, there are many out there uh, that are looking to uh, take you know a path similar to what I'm doing. Um, mm -hmm. so I'm, I'm happy to to uh, to have this conversation with you. And so, so as you mentioned earlier, um, so I'm director for global evidence and outcomes at Takeda. Mm -hmm. um, and I am uh, co-founder of Erod Health, uh, but in that capacity, uh, my my I'm I'm no longer um, actively managing Erod Health. Um, you know, my medical director is in charge of of running Erod Health now because of uh -huh. uh, Takeda. Fine. So your, your, your role at um, Takeda, so global um, evidence and outcomes. Uh, recently on the show, I've had uh, a guy called Jeff Trotter, who was global head of real world evidence uh, for worldwide clinical trials. Um, I guess global evidence and outcomes, is, that, is there any difference in that? Is there a certain nuance? How, how, just give us a quick overview of, of what that means uh, and what you guys are focused on on a day-to-day -day basis? So global evidence and, and outcomes, you would say the outcomes piece uh, it just goes specifically uh, to describing what we're actually getting from patient, mm -hmm. outcome of patients. Yeah. And so the evidence is what uh, they call the real-world evidence. So there's the real-world data and real-world evidence. Yeah. Real-world data is the data that you get from a patient a real patient yeah. as opposed to a clinical trial. Mm -hmm. So when a drug is developed, um, the drug is given to patients. So for the real world patients, so patients that are being seen by doctors in the hospital, the evidence that we get you know, from those kinds of patients is the real world evidence. Sure. So we get some form of data from this, those patients. And if that data is modified or what we call put into a model, to actually inform decisions or um, help in developing therapies or mm -hmm. used as comparative, um, useful comparative effectiveness studies uh, for some of the assets that we're working on, that becomes the evidence. Sure. So global evidence and outcomes just simply means that we'll, uh, we'll, we're looking at evidence from a clinical, from a patient perspective, mm -hmm. from a clinical perspective and from the patient's view as well, and bringing that evidence together to inform what we do. I see, so I see. In layman's definition, that's, that's, that's what, um, that is what uh, uh, real-world evidence is it's about. And look, I guess with that in mind, I guess that anytime you're running a trial, a test, you know, it's, it's normally under, you know, pretty controlled conditions, particularly at the, at the moment, right? You know, any labs that are, are open, there's going to be strict testing going in, going out. There's fewer people in there than, than normal. Um, how much difference 
is there between, I guess, the results you get in, in say, the trials to the, the real world evidence? What's what's kind of is there a you know percentage ratio, or how does it how does it work in in in, in real terms? I guess it's, it's that's a very very good question, and that's why uh, the real world evidence and and outcomes is so important. Mm. Is that the clinical trial is very uh, controlled. So it's a specific set of criteria that patients um, or the the, uh, the patients that I enrolled in have to meet in order for yeah. them to qualify for the trial mm-hmm. for that specific type of condition. But when you get into the real world, if the patient has the condition, they prescribe that medication. Mm. And so the importance of the real world evidence is to look at from the clinical perspective outside of the clinical trial. Yeah, uh, are these patients really getting the benefits of the drug that mm. will, or are these patients going to get the benefit of the drug that we're developing? Is it going to suit that patient population that we've really identified as a target mm-hmm. uh, for for this type of therapy? And and so that's 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 the the importance of the uh, real world evidence uh, in a clinical trial setting, and I can give you an example of some of the nuances that you know we find between clinical trial and the, the real world mm. if you look at lung cancer for instance right um, in a clinical trial setting they use a very strict uh criteria called a resist mm-hmm. resist is the uh, uh is the criteria used to measure outcomes or the responsiveness or the effectiveness of therapy for these patients yeah and this resist criteria is not measured in the real world. When an oncologist is seeing a patient, they do not use resist because resist takes a lot of time. Uh, it's very expensive. Uh, if the clinic or the hospital wanted to do that, that would mm-hmm. require more time with the radiologist and the oncologist. And that's a lot of money. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so uh, resist is not used in the real world. And so that makes it very, very difficult to actually um, do an apples to apples comparison of effectiveness of therapy. And so what the real world evidence does is we bring that uh, clinical perspective from the patient's view from the charts or the EMR and then kind of model the data to suit the clinical trial setting and then right. do an apples and try to, it, not exactly the same, but see whether the outcomes in a clinical setting is similar to what we're looking at in the uh, the clinical trial, mm-hmm. and and that and that's that's some of the, the the difference between you know what happens in a clinical trial and then in the real world. And so the real world would help inform or kind of compare what uh, compare to make sure that what the drug that we're developing is actually going to benefit the patients right. in the real world. And so without the real world evidence, it, it, it's kind of a you're, you're actually developing a drug for a specific set of patients. Mm. And when it gets into the real world, the outcomes may be different. Yeah. So, and now the FDA has, has realized that. And so FDA is actively and encouraging pharma to bring some form of a real world evidence as, as kind of a backup or um, to support some of these submissions. And so it's mm-hmm. become increasingly very important uh, since the release of the guidance for the use of real world data uh, in 2018 by the FDA. Yeah. Every pharma company is, is, is being on board in trying to leverage the real world evidence in, in some of these submissions.
makes sense. Look, so that gives us, a, like, I guess, a, a quick snapshot of, of what you're you're up to now in terms of the real world evidence and, and data. Um, but look, I, I guess, you know, one thing I always like to do with everyone who comes on the show is, is rewind right back as to how you ended up getting to this point, right? And, um, you know, you've clearly done well. You're, you know, a director of a, a very prestigious organization. Um, how did you first get into the industry? Is this something that you had planned? Because if I'm correct, you um, you grew up in Ghana, right? If I'm if I'm correct. Yes. So how how has this all come about? And you know, you're now you know, over in the states. You know, clearly doing very well um, in the world of, of pharma, which is massive at the moment. Um, and so many more people are, you know, understanding how clinical trials work and, and things. So how, how did this come about, Ernest, in, in your words? Yeah, I, would, I would start with a statement. You can never create a perfect part, you know, uh, in whatever you're doing. Um, mm. I, never, I never imagined uh, any of the things that I'm doing. I had no clue what was ahead of me. Uh, there's a few things that I, I did know back then, uh, but I didn't know much. Uh, and so I kind of, you know, learned along the way and I, 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 I was flexible to kind of adjust to uh, the situation. My main focus was, you know, I trained as a clinician. I trained as a dental surgeon right. in Ghana, uh, practiced with a UN military hospital for uh, two years. Um, and I saw some oncology patients, uh, did some surgeries. Uh, and moving over to the states, uh, I thought I was going to follow the, the same path. Just but, quickly before we before we come over to the states. So when you were working with um, sort of the UN and the setup, how how was the setup? You know how and because I, I guess it's it's a completely different world. You know, uh, working over in Africa compared to you know what the states is, is like. You know, we as a business we um, do a lot of recruitment into the developing world um, for en engineers as well as sort of uh, the life sciences side of things. It's, it's a whole different setup. So how, how did it change? What sort of processes were, were different? Yes, it's, it's a very completely, uh, it's different in some sense, but in terms of the, the type of medicine or the type of procedures done, it's similar uh, mm. because it's the same, the science is the same. Yeah, uh, it's different in terms of uh, resources. Um, it's different in terms of some of the regulatory um, requirements or licensure and certification. Yeah. Uh, it, other than that, I think the the rest is the same. But the um, what I learned um, working there is is that you know the the first two years is kind of what we call housemanship. Mm -hmm. uh, so you essentially serving. Um, the country working and you rotate in almost all. So I, I trained as a dental surgeon, so I rotated through all the dental rotations. Uh, oh. But my background started off in medical school mm -hmm. uh, with medical science and then tra uh, transitioned to the dental program. I uh, got my doctor of dental surgery and mm -hmm. then going to this hospital, you had to go through all the, the various rotations. Yeah. So I spent um, uh, quite a, um, um, a huge amount of time in oral and maxillofacial surgery. And we saw all kinds of cases as uh, some of the cases that in this setting would directly go to plastic surgeons. Right. But we saw some of those patients. We saw um, mandibular fractures, uh, craniofacial uh, uh, tumors. And uh, so, and then general dental cases, we did crowns, bridges, mm. uh, 
you name it, all the procedures, all the surgical procedures. And so it gave me kind of a very solid background in surgical skills. Yeah. You know, you know, across board. I bet because th there was perhaps more coming through to you than otherwise would elsewhere, exactly. right? Exactly. And some of the cases that we saw, and I had previously um, done some externships here uh, in the mm. US, UNC Chapel Hill, uh, oral maxillofacial surgery. Yeah. And so the cases that we saw were completely, they were not seeing these cases. They were seeing these cases, reading them in textbooks. While I had a personal hands-on experience. Real world experience. Real world experience. <laughs> yeah. And so I learned a lot, but I also saw the inefficiencies um, in some of the things that we do. Uh, one, one, one thing that really hit me was uh, a patient, one of my patients that I saw uh, back then mm. uh, had a craniofacial tumor, uh, squamous cell carcinoma of the maxillary antrum. And this patient had, you know, initially been into in the UK, was already in the, uh, was in the UK initially. Mm. Um, none of, um, not, uh, no OMFS surgeon wanted to touch this patient. Meanwhile, there was oh. no evidence of metastasis. They had done all the CTs and all of that. Mm. So this patient came to Ghana because this is a U.S. military hospital. We get a lot of um, SPACs. Yeah. And came and her main concern was that she needed to get this tumor out of her face because it was bulging out of her face. There's a, a 75 year old lady. Wow. So we assessed, um, I assessed with, with, my, with my consultant, we call it then, here would be an attendant. Mm -hmm. And we re-evaluated a CT, we, 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 we did a CT again, we repeated a CT and there was no evidence of metastasis anywhere. And so we're like, okay, this is a very, just an aggressive tumor, so we're gonna go in. So we went in, resected, reconstructed, the patient felt better, with, mm. you know, looking at her face, excited. And then during a follow-up, a month later, uh, patient started complaining of headaches and dizziness. And we repeated right. this and found out that there was a brain mass just within a month. And so then I began to ask myself questions. What did mm. we miss? You know, uh, there was a disconnect between what the patient's expectations were and what the clinical expectations were. Right. So we cut the shot, eventually we lost that patient. Mm. And I had to present the case at a surgical meeting. Um, and I was bombarded with all sorts of questions. Like, why are you going? You had all these surgeons um, failing to do the surgery because it was risky. Why did you go in? And it, it, wasn't, it wasn't my decision. It was my, you know, mm. attendant decision. But... Um, I thought at the time it, we made a right decision. Yeah, uh, and that really changed my 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 focus. I was like, how could I make sure, you know, there's something more that I need to know about mm. how to align patients' you know expectations with clinical expectation. Is there something? And so I had that at the back of my mind, but I had no solution to that. Right. And so went to the states, um, enrolled in. Um, um, a fellowship program at Harvard Medical School, looking at mm -hmm. uh, clinical trials, secondary analysis of trials, and really focusing on patients' uh, patients' outcomes. Yeah, I learned a lot, and being able to incorporate uh, or align the patients' expectations with the clinical expectations, because you're really focused on outcomes. You know, you're really focused on outcome, not just for the clinician, but also for the patient. It's it's, it's huge in in any. Uh, business you know I mean we're a recruitment business we're managing expectations all the time whether it's you know financial benefits you know locations 
etc etc for clinical trials and particularly you know oncology managing expectations is it's everything you know it's it's kind of that per perceived outcome yeah. has to be you have to be on the same page as your patients don't you exactly and and some of these patients they don't really know much about um their condition mm -hmm. they only know what a clinician you know gives them or what they've read but we know the prognosis of the different because they're different types of cancers mm -hmm. and so that really really changed my whole perception about like oncology and and so coming here and being exposed to some of these um, innovative um, treatments and technologies that are being developed to make sure that outcomes are better for patients uh, was, was very, very encouraging to me. And so that yeah. was, drove me towards the uh, reward evidence uh, field. Mm -hmm. uh, and I spent uh, quite a few short months at uh, Boston Children's Hospital Mm -hmm. working on cleft lip and palate um, surgical outcomes. Yeah. Um, looking at how, you know, creating a scale to measure outcomes of alveolar bone grafts in cleft lip and palate patients. So for me, what that, that, that was a, a moment where I was like, okay, now what I missed in a clinical setting, now I have a chance to create something that would help clinicians look at, look into the future of mm -hmm. what you have to do. You know, uh, and, and so that that was exciting. And right after that, you know, I got into health IT, yeah, in oncology, and my role spanned from medical partnerships, where mm -hmm. we created John's Joint Solutions between my company, um, and then other um, health IT companies, or with pharma, and then moved. I moved from that role into a more HUR health economics and outcomes research. Mm -hmm. uh, and regulatory research, where we looked at specifically real-world evidence, how we'd leverage that real-world evidence to support clinical trials. And so nice. it was, for me, everything was coming together. Mm. Uh, but the piece that was missing was that I was limited in that space. And so um, I was looking for opportunity to go to a place where everything, all that I've learned can be brought together. Mm -hmm. Because I, you know, after my training in uh, fellowship in clinical trials at Harvard Medical School, you know, I also have an MBA from um, a Crestron School of Business. Yeah. So now how do I put everything together? And that was where Takeda came in, you know, mm. where, you know, our whole umbrella is on the Data Science Institute, uh, which means we're, whatever we're doing is technology-centered, um, uh, patient-centered as well. And we're making sure that what we're developing is going to automatically, uh, uh, eventually help patients. Wow. In, you know, improving the outcomes. And uh, we have some exciting assets that uh, I think um, the, the, uh, patients will be happy to, 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 to get in the future. Amazing. It's, it's, it's just, as, as you say, you probably, if you were to try and write that from the start, without knowing having gone through it or it would just be almost impossible um so look how does you know it's you know you've been very successful you've managed to navigate um across countries um you know through different stages of, of your career how does your typical day look now wow that's that's a very good question i should i give you pre-covid and post-covid <laughs> i tell you 
Oh, I, I tell you, why don't you also cover, I guess, because um, like, there's something that I, I normally ask is, you know, how things are going and how you've been affected, you know, how, how's the the transition gone from pre-COVID to, um, to to where we are now? Exactly. So I joined Pharma in the COVID era. So um, I, I would say pre-COVID, you know, pre-COVID, I was, uh, I was at Coda, Coda mm-hmm. Health, uh, and it was it was amazing. Uh, my experience was great uh, because yeah. I, I I essentially worked on in two different roles, uh, which was exciting. Mm. And then I got you know exposed to a lot in in, in the pharma world. Um, but joining pharma in the COVID era is also completely different. Um, you know, moving from a company with about a hundred and something employees to a company with. <laughs> hundreds of thousands of employees yeah uh, the global outreach like in almost over 80 countries you know that's that's it's a huge company mm. but the experience has been great um Takeda has done a good job as uh, making sure that you know the needs of employees are met uh we work together very well uh the transition from um working in the office to working remote has been smooth Mm-hmm. And, and amazingly, I, I love my team. I love the team here at, at Takeda. Uh, we do a good job at supporting each other. Um, and we're working on some exciting things that I think everyone is passionate about. And so that is what keeps us going um, in, in this period. And how, but- how, have you, how have you found, I guess, the remote working with your team? I, you know, all of us are now using Zoom, Teams, and um google chats and you know all sorts of different platforms for for communication um how have how how have you and your team embraced that is there anything that you do to i guess you know keep things interesting um so what i did i did something that is a, a little funny uh, mm. also admit, let's say interesting so i have like three working stations yeah. at my place and so i change locations from time to time and so if I work uh, in this current location for, let's say, two hours, then I'll move to another location in, in my in, in, in my Hot uh, desk in, in your own home. In my own home. So I have like <laughs> three separate decks mm. that I use. And so I just change from, from, from one desk to the other just to keep it a bit more interesting, you know. A bit of variety, uh, yeah. Yeah, but I have found for me, I really like the remote meetings, especially if it involves like a very large groups mm-hmm. uh, because it's a global company. Sometimes we have like a global meeting. So you, you're you connecting with folks in Japan, Germany, yeah, um, you know, in some other areas in Europe. And in the past, let's say you would do the local team would be in a conference room. And then you connect via video to with, with the, the team um, outside the country. But now we're all of us are, you know, remote. And yeah. it, for me, I think it's much more personal interaction, just like what we're doing now. That's mm. it, it, a direct, uh, um, you're directly looking at one another. Um, and, and for me, that, that's, that's, that's the connection right there. Uh, you're able to focus on each other, you, you know, you see each other and everyone is comfortable you know, where they're at. Um, and so I, I think for me, it's been, it's been good. Uh, the only thing that I've noticed is that you tend to work more <laughs> working from home. <laughs> I, I was going to say work more, maybe eat more as well. Exactly. I, I, I have a, a tendency to, yeah, if, if I need to, you know, go to the bathroom, 
I'll check the fridge. If I need to get a drink, I'll check the fridge. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And that and that's that's what it's been for me. It's like okay, lunch break. Um, I would just walk right into uh, to the kitchen and just get something, a little something, eat. Sometimes I'll even bring it to my desk and yeah. eating and, and working. And so you realize that you spend more time working and taking little breaks. And so uh, recently we, we, we've had meetings about that and uh, our leadership team have, have done a great job uh, making sure that we are aware that we have to take breaks, take the sure. vacation. Take I think that's, that's one of the... the the unrecognized maybe challenges that we've all faced is exactly. actually just when when to put put work down sometimes mm -hmm. it's you know i i know it's it's crazy uh for me i mean we're coming up it's, it's half seven uh in the evening for myself here in london I've, I've been kind of at my desk since nine nine this morning um and and sometimes it's it's earlier but it's just that when there's nothing else to do, I mean, I can't go out to a restaurant tonight, if even if I wanted to, um, you know, there's, it's just, it is a case of just being a bit more regimented. Maybe I need to get myself a few more desks set up around the house so I can, I can do work a couple of hours. Like, I do like that idea. What, what other challenges um, perhaps have, have you uh, faced, whether it's been, you know, furlough or working from home or staffing and, and hiring? Because um, I know a lot of, our clients as, as a recruitment business have, I guess, found it difficult on the hiring side of things, not because there's no one on the market. There's, there's tons of people, you know, looking for research jobs, etc. But the competition is fiercer than ever because, you know, I could speak to you on, on this if this was a job interview. Two minutes later, I could be on another one and then, you know, and, and so on and so on. And it's just become almost relentless that strive to, to to get the best talent because it's so easy for job seekers to, to hold multiple in, uh, interviews not have to travel and do it all from the comfort of their own homes yeah it's it's a i would say it's it's a bit of a challenge but also it is also good in a sense that now now you have you're not limited by you know travel or anything mm on a zoom call and interview somebody yeah uh, i think the format is is still the same um and, and and i can speak to my experience in the past and what you know uh it's been done currently at my mm. at my job and and i can even use my own experience you know interviewing at, at takeda and i think they we we look for kind of the fit because you can have the resume speaks for itself and so the fit that is their culture fit uh, for this person, mm. and and so you 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 interview with different managers or different uh, uh, leaders, and they kind of kind of assess your fit. Um, the technical expertise, I think, your resume speaks more for itself. Uh, you would, you would, uh, That's what I always say to people: that you wouldn't be at the interview if there was no interest in your technical expertise. Just be you at, the, at that point. Exactly. So how, you know, articulate are you? Do you fit into what we do? Um, is there a culture fit, uh, a people fit? Because uh, one of the things about, you know, the company, uh, my company is that it's, it's more centered on people, patient and people. And so which, which is very, very good. And so that's why you look at our rating. Um, it's, it's a great place to work. And so yeah, that's amazing. One, one key thing.
um, from my experience with, let's say, Erod Health in the past, mm. is that I also look for uh, a culture fit. You know, the personality. I look for personalities, uh, people who are, who are ready to learn. Not that you come in all knowing. Nobody knows it all, uh, mm. but we'll learn from each other. And it's, it's this candidate humble enough to say that I don't know this and ready to learn. Um, that's 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 kind of all you want. I mean, as as a business owner myself, yeah, it's it's fit. Exactly. Ten times out of ten, you know, I'm I'm well aware that the strength of my business, particularly as a recruitment business, is built on the, the strength of, of our people. You know, I want people. I I don't. You know, I've often had people ask me, "How do you get your um, staff to be so you know polite and motivated?" I'm like, I I don't. They 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 I hire polite and motivated people. I then just give them tools on the recruitment side of things. You know, it, there's nothing, it's, it's not rocket science. It's it's nothing overly smart. It's just picking good people who share the values of, of the business. And exactly. And you you pick some of these things, like, right, like if I have conversations with people, I can just pick that up. Mm. You know, you pick some of these things up. Uh, we're talking about your regular, like everyday stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm outside of work how do you interact with your colleagues how do you solve problems um how do you work together in a team have you worked on a cross-functional team you know these questions that we sometimes take for granted and we're more focused that i think some people or candidates are more focused on the technical side no company would even bother to call you for an interview if they thought your technical expertise did not match the requirements that that was required 100% 100% I mean that's yeah you you wouldn't be there because a busy director isn't going to schedule out an hour of their time to take a punt on somebody who may or may not have the expertise they're looking for exactly Exactly. so it's more of a the fit and can you articulate what what you you, you've done um you know are you you know a learner Mm. I, you do work well with people and um so so it's some small small stuff like that and and i think um for most people depending on um what they like to do the people that like to work solo the people that work, like to work in teams mm. uh, i enjoy working with teams cross-functional teams and so for certain roles especially in pharma or in health it that they're looking for people who are can work in cross-functional teams. Work together, yeah, I guess. Particularly at the moment, like it almost, almost it sometimes needs to, to be a better fit at the moment because there isn't that that you're not in a room where you can really get the body language from people as as well as the the eye contacts and and everything else. So at the moment, it's more apparent those who are a good fit, you know it almost instantly. Like, okay, this person, they're a yes. Let's get that let's get them in um but look I, I guess on that side of things hopefully we're not all going to be in this position for too much longer and we will have the choice um there's a lot of positive news um sort of hitting the, the, the media now um i guess look what are your thoughts on say the vaccines and what's in store for us as we move into sort of 2021 further and, and some of the, the evidence then starts to rear its head what are your predictions or I think things are going to get better. You know, it can only get better from here. I think we've, we've gone through the darkest times and um, 
companies have survived. Um, it's, it's sad that some companies, you know, have crushed. Uh, but I think things are going to get better. It's just um, there's going to be a, a really a real change in in work, in the way we work. Work as we used to know is going to be completely changed uh, now. Um, and, and there are a few companies that have already started out saying all our employees can opt to be remote. There's an option to be a remote employee. Yeah, well, we're, 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 we're the same. That's exactly what we've, we've done. <laughs> exactly. And, and so it's going to really transform the corporate world. Um, and so people have to find a way to be able to combine what they do at home with work because mm. you're working from home more often than uh, previously. But talking about the vaccine in general, I think it's the rollout, it's, it's been tough. But especially for the U.S., uh, I think with this new administration, there's a, there's a, um, they're really doing well in trying to make sure that uh, people are vaccinated. And especially for, I can speak for Massachusetts, I, you know, I can speak to the situation in Massachusetts. Um, I think the state has done very well in rolling this out. Yeah. Uh, vaccination is going on. Um, uh, restaurants uh, have really strict COVID guidelines. Uh, you can still go out to eat. Oh, you can. Uh, nice. But, yeah. Um, but you have to follow the protocols. Mm. Um, and, and I think that that's very helpful. I go to Trader Joe's here in Brookline, and um, there's, there's strict protocols that you follow. And I think it makes life easy for everyone. Uh, it curbs the, the, the spread of the virus. And uh, at the same time, making sure that people can live a little bit closer to normal life. Sure. Um, it's, it's, it is definitely getting better. There's the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, good to hear that you guys have already got restaurants open and look, everyone's happy to follow the guidelines. If it means you can get out and you know see people, fantastic. Um, what what else are you looking to, to add to, uh, I guess, the daily life, Ernest, when we do get back to what was the old normal as it as it may be? You know, what, do you, what, what, what do you what do you get up to in in um you know outside of Erod outside of Tuskeda, outside of pharmaceuticals. What's uh, what keeps you busy? Yeah, so uh, I love the New England area, and I used to, uh, you know, every year I'll go skiing. And this year I'm going to do that. Yeah. Uh, and then on the weekends, you know, I, I like soccer. Every Ghanaian is uh, <laughs> it was a soccer player at some point in their yeah. life, <laughs> you know. So I used to play with a, a group at a Harvard Field every mm -hmm. Saturday. And so post-COVID, I'm looking forward to returning to that. Nice. Uh, and I, uh, you know, love trying new places. Uh, what, new what, on the soccer front, what position are you? I was a striker. So back in, so my med school team, mm. uh, we had um, we had a team and, and, and I was one of the strikers. So uh, nice. I, I'm, I play a, in a forward position and uh, uh, I, I, I would say I'm, I'm an okay player. <laughs> modesty, modesty. I'm an okay player. And, uh, and so it's also exciting. You know, I also watch the Premier League and the Syria. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, soccer is it's part of the fun, fun aspect of, of, of my life. And so, well, if you're still, still playing striker, you know, at, at this stage in your career, then you must be pretty good because I know <laughs> I used to play striker and then I just gradually knocked myself back. I was like, oh, left back. I'll just play left back. Just want an easy life. I guess when, when you're used to playing that position, 
you always, you know, I played a little bit of a midfield role, but mm. I, I like more in the, in the, in the striker's position uh, because I, I, I feel like you, I'm able to uh, bring out the, my skills much better in that, yeah. in that position. Uh, no, it's, it's good. Yeah. I mean, I, I used to play for um, sort of Ipswich and Norwich, who used to be in the Premier oh, League nice. way, way back, but um, not anymore. That was as, as a teenager. Um, but then as I got a little bit older, I was... I, I moved into the world of boxing and football boxing. just kind of got knocks on the head. And I, I was just like, look, I'm, I'm, I'm still here to play guys, but I just want to play left back. You know, I, I started getting too many injuries from football that was preventing me from boxing. Nice. nice. <laughs> I, mean, I try. I play. So I play ping pong and I'm also like a beginner golfer. And so I try to, you know, learn along the, along the way. Um, they're, they're a couple, I think they're very interesting sports that, if you just you know open up like you know open up a little bit you you'd be amazed you know some really interesting sports out there that you can really enjoy that makes life much more fun than uh, than normal so good to hear it well Ernest look it's, it's, it's amazing to hear that you've clearly got a, a balanced life you've, you've done very well in terms of you know the international travel uh, making a successful career so far you clearly like what you do um and you're also, it sounds like, a budding sportsman as well. So, look, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Um, I'll no doubt I'll, I'll tag you when when the show goes out. But I'm assuming that if anyone wants to reach out, whether it's with regards to Erod to um, get onto your colleagues over there or in relation to Takeda, uh, is the best place through LinkedIn or? Yes. Be yeah, best place would still be LinkedIn. Um, I'm happy to um, answer any questions that anyone might have or you know um any interesting opportunities that you know people I, I'm, I'm a lifelong learner so i always want to learn so sure perfect well look, thanks again for coming on the show it's been an absolute pleasure having you same here thank you for the time all right cheers ernie speak soon you as well mm -hmm.